I'm Rico, and this is the Always the Critic podcast, where a couple friends review the latest movies, except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. If this is your first time listening, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you really like us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, because that goes a really long way for this show. Don't forget to check us out on social media to stay up to date on the latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at AlwaysCriticPod. Now, today, you'll notice that Jessica was not in the opening. She's actually not on this episode. She is tending to personal matters. Uh, So today, I have as a guest host, Miguel Albarison. Hello. And today, we are going to talk about a movie that... Boy, people really dunked on this weekend. Uh, Not only did critics dunk on it, but audiences, and by audiences, I mean the few who actually watched it, The Goldfinch. Now, uh, this is an adaptation of a novel written by Donna Tartt. It was written by Peter Strawn, uh, directed by John Crowley, starring Ansel... Ansel Elgort, I always have a, tr- I always have a problem saying his name. Ansel Elgort, Nicole Kidman, Oakes Fegley, Finn Wolfhard, Luke Wilson, and Sarah Paulson. According to IMDb, the synopsis reads as follows: A boy in New York is taken in by a wealthy Upper East Side family after his mother is killed in a bombing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, uh, this movie, like I mentioned, critics did not like it. 25% Rotten Tomato score. That is not a very good score. Audiences gave it a 75%, which is a decent score, but usually audiences are more forgiving, so 75 doesn't really speak to a large consensus that they really enjoyed it. Uh, and it wasn't viewed by a lot of people because it only made $2.6 million in its opening weekend. That is good for 7th place. In its opening weekend, which is not great. Uh, So, I think the best place to start is our ratings. Listen up, the ratings just came in for last month. We are number one. We just grabbed every key demographic. Super duper. Super duper. That's nice. So, Miguel, I want to go ahead and ask you, on a scale of one to five... What did you rate this movie? Because the reason why I have Miguel Barrison on today is because uh, obviously without a guest host, I definitely need someone to guest host with me. But Miguel is actually a pretty big fan of the novel, The Goldfinch. And so, Miguel, take it away. Very big fan of the novel. Read it at least once a year. Tradition at this point. Um, Which is why it kills me to say that I am going to have to. It is my obligation to give this movie a two and a half out of five. Oh, okay. Your obligation. Oh, yes. Wow. Okay. Oh, yes. All right. So tell me why, what goes behind giving it that rating? The problem is, is that this movie was meant more to be uh, looking at the book for what it is. It's a very long book. It clocks in at something like 800 pages, a little bit over. And they're very tight pages. They're very, it's a very dense read. It covers the protagonist, uh, Theodore Decker, um, played by Ansel Elgort in the movie. It covers his basically his entire life. It was hailed as the Dickensian novel. 
this, that, and the other. Even at two hours and 40 some odd minutes that it clocks in, it is a very difficult task to cram his entire life and everything that happens in that book, even with some considerable alterations. It's very difficult to squeeze into the movie. So right from the jump, that wasn't going to work. Just the pacing, the way that the movie takes the pacing and the order that everything flows in doesn't really work. Um, But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful mess. And I'm sure we'll get into that more. But that's really what I can say about that. It's a beautiful mess right from the beginning. I see. So... I'm taking the approach that because I've never read the book. I've uh, I know you've sworn by this book. You love it so much. I I just am not a habitual reader when it comes to just reading novels or anything really. Uh, I should do that more. But with that said, taking it the movie by itself, I thought that it was beautifully shot. So you have Roger Deakins to thank for that. Uh, if you don't know Deakins, take a look at. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, take a look at Brooklyn, uh, No Country for Old Men, etc., etc., etc. There are a lot of movies that he has been the cinematographer for. And so, uh, beautifully shot. I think the acting was good, although there's a couple of characters that I didn't think really... I don't know if it's because of the source material that I wasn't all that sold about, like particularly the best friend, which is played by two people. It's played by Wolf Finhard from stranger things when he's younger. And then Wolf Finhard, Wolf Finhard, uh, no Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> Don't get me confused here. Uh, and so, and then you have someone else playing the older version, but I don't, really see why it had to be someone foreign because it it pulls you out anytime you see these characters because they they're just the character in the movie context in the movie context uh the the two characters or the character itself feels like from a different movie they feel like from a different story that is being interjected into this very you know upper east side blue blood type of you know family dynamic and then he gets forced into a different situation with his father and so that that's one of the criticisms I had was the the acting by or not really the acting it's more the actual character the character, the character itself yes okay. of course um, when it comes to overall the movie I think overall the movie is it's a slow pace and and I was waiting for it to have like a triumphant moment or at least something that felt like a triumph and ne- and never got there. At least for me, it never got there. Uh, so I, I actually give the movie a three because I think because you can overlook some of the stuff. You can overlook uh, certain characters or you can overlook some of the pacing. But the one thing you can overlook is the resolution of this movie. I feel like the way it's resolved, just the movie itself, uh, leaves so much to be desired that that's why it's brought down. And you can tell that Warner Brothers, this is the movie, or at least one of the movies, that they thought, you know what, we have high aspirations for, 
we are putting you know some top talent together for this and it just it it didn't stick the landing pretty much and that's why i gave it a three uh a little bit generous i think when most people were to hear that uh they would think that's a bit of a generous rating I mean, it's certainly beautiful enough to be a three. Um, if we're, I mean, if we're going by that alone, it is just a, it's a delight to look at. It's again, Brooklyn. <laughs> he worked on Brooklyn as well, and that movie was all. That movie is actually very similar to this one, and where it falls in terms of being kind of middle of the road, kind of meandering, but you don't really care because it's just so good to look at. Um, I mean, here's the thing. The thing about Boris, he, he, like you said, it's not the acting. It's definitely not the acting, but that makes sense in the book. In the book, he's actually, his accent is actually, uh, likened to an Australian KGB Dracula. That's what they mention his accent is. So in the movie, he actually played that pretty well. And it does seem weird and out of the ordinary, but I think that also has to do with what I think is this movie's biggest problem, the sequence of events, the way that the movie is structured. Uh, The problem is, is that there's an incident that happens in the movie that's the catalyst for all of this. Um, So there's an explosion at a metropolitan art museum. It's a terrorist attack, and that's where Theodore loses his mother. The problem is, is that 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 event is basically what causes everything in the book to unfold. The only problem is it's not the first thing that we see in the movie. We don't get to see why Theo is the way that he is. We don't get to see the full desolation of Theo's character because he goes from this bright blue but blue blood raised by a single mom but still nice northerner to a western, degraded, burnt-out, small-town, substance abuse, traumatized. It's a very long process in the book. So he meets somebody like Boris out in the middle of nowhere. It makes sense that he's out there within that context. But without that order, that small, seemingly innocuous problem of not ordering the movie correctly makes the whole thing fall apart. So... What we're going to do is, uh, before I get any further into plot details or anything that would be a spoiler for those who have never read the book and are planning to see the movie, I do want to bring uh, read real quick. We did get a comment through our Twitter feed, at AlwaysCriticPod, uh, from Mike, at Velcro16. He said that he watched The Goldfinch today. Uh, the film is beautiful to look at. It's beautiful to hear. The performance are okay. The story has no purpose. It goes nowhere. Nothing is paid off. And I really mold it over. I do not regret watching it, but I don't feel like I really saw anything. So that is his general thought on the movie. And we want to thank Mike for sending in that comment. Now, uh, so we can really dive a little deeper as to why it didn't land and some other stuff let's go ahead and move into spoilers the greatest trick houston we have a problem i am the father i see dead people the devil ever pulled pay no attention to that man behind the curtain 
murder. Was convincing the world. You can't handle the truth. He didn't exist. Oh, what's in the box? Now, I want to talk about the differences between the source material and the actual adaptation. So, since you've read it, since you've seen the movie, what would you say is the biggest thing that was either left out that should have been in there or something that would have made maybe better for the for the actual movie? Oh, boy, where do we even begin? Okay. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and reiterate this, and it's... There's two. There's two. Sorry. Number one, and I have to say it again, I'll leave it at that, the order. Without having the big cataclysmic terrorist attack that happens in the Metropolitan Art Museum and to see why Theodore was there. Theodore ended up in the museum in the first place because it was his fault. He got blamed for smoking, which is mentioned in the movie, and as a way to stall to avoid going to this parent-teacher conference, he asked his mom to take him to the theater. That's where the explosion happens, etc., etc. It is cataclysmic the way that she dies. And the desolation of him just sitting in the museum once the explosion has happened, a lot unfolds in there and it happens at once. It, by not putting that at the beginning, the rest of the movie, you don't. Re- there's no stakes, there's no purpose, there's no reason. Um, but the second thing would be, it's a tie between the third act and the desert. But I'm going to go ahead and go more for the desert. The desert scene had to take up the bulk majority of this movie. Mm. It should have been from... That's such a heavy scene because we get a very small sliver of what Theodore's life is like before he has to move with his father. Okay, He moves to the desert and that's where his life... More and more drugs, more and more drinking, more and more... He gets completely lost and that's where all his adult decisions make sense when he finally runs away back to New York. That part wasn't long enough, and I feel like the audience was conned by cheating them. There's a scene where he goes into a bathtub when he comes back up. Yeah. We jump forward to where his life is now. Yeah, He's being threatened about the painting, but we have no—there's no buildup for that. As a reader, I felt like I was filling in a good 40% of the left-out parts. Ah, I see. There's so many little things. And to speak on that moment there— I feel that this entire movie is built around the premise of a person who survived this traumatic experience and is holding on to one token from that moment to guide him, to give him hope. And that is that painting of the goldfish, of the goldfinch. But the problem is that we don't really see that painting often in the movie. Like, you see it in glimpses, you see it in flashbacks, but... And when you do see Theo with the painting, he has it covered up in newspaper the entire time. So we don't even see him appreciating the actual painting. So um, the movie itself, just the movie, the movie didn't have a true buildup for him to then towards the third act to be in this pressure situation of I need to get the painting back because in the movie he loses the painting well, he doesn't actually lose it. It's actually Boris took it when they were teens and replaced it with some with a civics book. So, but we didn't have like a true buildup or, you know, why he cared about it so much. 
We don't even know why he took it. No, we which don't. Which is the biggest... The whole reason that he took the painting was in the delirium of the explosion. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, I have to grab this for my mom. I have to get this now. I have to get... So it makes sense. And then he realizes, oh, shit, oh, no. I just stole... <laughs> A super valuable painting. And for the most part, the painting is kept under wraps throughout the entire book. But none of that, again, I was filling in those details as I watched it. I'm like, wait, what's the point here? Yeah. And it's a shame because if this movie did have a more linear type of storytelling where they they wrote it, which I'm surprised that Donna Tartt actually helped with the way it was with the screenplay. And, but the way I'm surprised too. Yeah, I didn't know the that. way it's structured. Mm. The way it's structured just leaves a bit of a mess. It leaves a little bit of confusion for people who, um, let's say they're not fully paying attention to the story as they're watching it. I can see why people would be confused, and even people who did pay attention, like myself, like I was, like I was trying to buy in to the plot. I was trying to buy into the story, but it felt like nothing grabbed hold of me like there are fascinating characters in this movie like you have boris who i complain about in terms of the story but like he's a very interesting character and pushes our main character into a different situation which is great you you want your main character to be in different scenarios you want them pushed uh you have a antagonist for our actual protagonist which is the father the father and the stepmother uh (laughs) luke wilson and sarah paulson sarah paulson by the way uh, she it almost feels like she's a chameleon because in anything she is for a moment you forget that it's her and then you realize wait a minute was that sarah paulson and so and then like in this movie what's her what's her name what's the character's name i believe it's zandra with an x yeah i remember the emphasis with an x that was one of my favorite things and the fact that she's like super tanned orange (laughs) a stark reminder that i believe if i'm not mistaken sarah paulson was played by betty or betty page was played by sarah paulson wasn't she i'm sorry Hang on, no, never mind. I'm thinking of that wrong. Yeah, but she was in that right. movie, and she was basically kind of like a pinup girl. Gotcha. It was a mess. So, I think there's some interesting aspects of the movie. They're just, like you mentioned, they're out of order, so it doesn't allow the audience, doesn't allow the viewer to really sink their teeth in and to really move with the character because the since the character's all out of place, you can't put your hooks into it. So. I think that's the biggest problem with this movie. It you just can't you can't dive in. You can't lose yourself with the characters because you can't lose yourself because there's nothing to lose yourself in. That's the problem. Exactly. Like, why did Nicole Kidman keep giving him like this very every time they would show she had this very cold, snaky glare? Yeah, and it didn't really line up with what was in the book either. I'm like, what's happening? Exactly. So I. I don't I don't get it. I didn't get it actually. And I mean th- there's so many things that could have gone right with this with this adaptation. It could have been a movie we would be talking about like a great 
literary adaptation, which, by the way, I wanted to actually ask you about this. Because uh-huh. since you read more and you have definitely seen movies that have been adapted or adapted, sorry, <laughs> that's not a word, adapted from a novel. Why is it, sure. do, do you think, that we have so many complaints from readers that it's not as good as the book? It's not as good as the book. I always hear that no matter what, it's not as good as the book. What would you say is the typical answer as to why? Is it just... Uh, There's two. One is very simple, and it's expectations versus reality. When you read a book, you're going to picture it away in your head, and and you're going to picture it the best possible way. You're directing that movie as you're reading it. You're seeing the characters. You're filling in with an actor or maybe an amalgamation to make your characters. And you're like, you know, I didn't picture Ansel Elgort as Theo. Not a million years. Um, but that's just the way it is. But that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a fallacy in and of itself. If we're looking at things objectively, there's, there's going to be cuts. And you bet with an 800-plus page book there's going to be cuts or alterations. People don't like that, even if it makes it simpler. There's things from the book that didn't make it into the movie that I'm glad didn't make it into the movie. It has some clunky exposition here or there. It has some scenes that are completely unnecessary. This whole stint with his grandparents, it's a whole thing. But what what my least favorite parts of the book are might not be, you know, might be somebody's favorite parts of the book. What somebody loves more than anything in a book might be what I hate in a book. So people's expectations versus what we ultimately get in a film doesn't work. The only adaptation I've seen that's 100% true to the source material that paid off for the most part by most accounts was Watchmen. It was a shot-by-shot, frame-by-frame, panel-by-panel remake. And even then, people weren't happy. So ultimately, it's expectations versus reality. That's all it is. So... One of the things that people always bring up to me is that, you know, you should read the book before seeing the movie. And in my, this is just a personal thing for me. And I don't want to read the book because of that reason. I love movies. I love watching movies. I love getting lost in movies. I love being able to journey in a story that a filmmaker or creator has. And I love just watching it and enjoying it if i read the book before or ahead of time most of the time i'm going to be in that mode of hey this is not in the story or why didn't they put this in oh i didn't imagine it like this and it's just going to take me out of the movie so that's one reason why i personally don't read the book ahead of time then again i i'm not really reading books which i should probably do more But I do agree with you, though, that the expectations, uh, it's just, it's too much. There's too many people. There's too many things. There's, you're not going to make everyone happy. 800 pages. Yeah. How do you translate that? 800 pages. And, you know, you have a point. Like, I don't, the thing is, is that I don't think it has to be an either or situation, you know, there's a kind of fallacy in being well-read also. I don't think we need to read everything anymore. Um, and I agree. There's some things that I will not I will not read. I didn't read Crazy Rich Asians. 
I didn't read it because it's going to work better as a fluff piece movie, and it ended up blowing away my expectations. The other two are coming out, or three, is it? Uh, two more. So they, they The other two, two are coming out. Yeah, I have no plans to read them because the movie worked so well. But it's not something I would read. So I kind of agree with you there. For a book like this, I feel like it should have been... If you haven't read it, I think you should. If you watch the movie and you're disappointed, please read the book. It's a story that is worth reading. But ultimately, I see what you mean, and I do agree pretty largely. If a movie's like right there and it's coming out, I'm not, I'm not going to read it. Gotcha. So one more thing, and I think it's something that you said... And this is, I think this will be the last point in spoilers. It's the actual event in the movie, the the bombing at the at the Met, or at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm. This movie doesn't really show it. It doesn't really even, like, dive into, like, the full event. It just hints and flashback really quick, like, little... Like if he's dreaming of the event and like it passes as a quick memory. Or if he can't remember because it's amnesia. And so that was a little disappointing. Not because I'm saying that I want to see this bombing, but like that is a major event in his life. It's a huge event in his life, but we don't even it's see the it. centerpiece of the entire movie. Right. And it also is a if it's also a, a plot a failure in the plot mm. it's a there's a plot hole there because the reason why there's a scene where theo's being interrogated about you know where he was his whereabouts all of that has to do with the painting that he stole right they don't care about his well-being that's why they don't ask if he's okay or no. not he's feigning ignorance and trying his hardest not to talk to law enforcement and he knows why so I was seeing, I was like, okay, maybe they're going to play it that I forgot what happened, but that doesn't make sense. He knows what happened. That's why he's nervous in front of law enforcement. Right. So it, it just doesn't work. It's a really flawed sequence. It just, it doesn't work. No, it, it doesn't work. And believe me, I, I And the explosion to... was beautiful too. Oh my God. Did you see that? Like the, it went, the effect. The, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, yeah. The dust coming in. So- Finally, uh, before we get out of here, this is actually a pretty short episode. Unless, did you have any other things that you wanted to talk about in terms of spoilers? That in terms of spoilers, like maybe you wanted um, to see that we didn't get to see, or I wanted to see more of Boris. Uh, Boris and Theo's relationship in the book gets really deep and really toxic, but at the center of it, it gets it's very loving, mm. and they find in each other a solidarity. Like the movie plays it out to be two stoner kids who just meet and whatever. Mm-hmm. They're all they've got gotcha. in this book, and it's a friendship that's really beautiful and it really blows up. Spoiler wise, I think that's. It, oh, the dad. The dad's acting was terrible. I don't know what Luke that Wilson? was. No, 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 not him. The oh, stepdad, Mr. Um, Barber. Gotcha. He had a transatlantic accent one moment, and then he was, <laughs> I don't know what his deal was. That was terrible. Uh, I, I was a little surprised by the way you mentioned earlier, Nicole Kidman. Her character is the one who takes Theo in for a temporary time, and... Very cold to him early on, but then it treats him like a son when he grows up later on. 
And there's a reason for very that. close, but the movie doesn't dive into it, right? No, the movie yeah, doesn't really dive into it. I think that they were trying to oversell her icy glares towards Theo. Yeah. So, but it didn't convey the message. The whole point of that was she wasn't ready to accept another person in the family. She thought Theo was going to be a bad influence on the kid, Andy, who ends up, mm. you know. Yeah. So that's why she was so icy to him. But after she lost her husband and her son and her this and her that, she's like, oh, here's my chance to have a son again. Mm. And it's actually a really beautiful, you know, she regrets everything. They live a lot more simply. But the movie, again, just, it doesn't do it. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't do it's it. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a beautiful story, guys. Read it. All right. Now, are there any moments or performances from this movie that you can think of that would possibly make it into like the best of the year type of thing? To be honest with you, me personally, I can't think of anything. Nothing really stood out in that way. Um, it's shot beautifully, but I don't think this is going to be the most beautifully shot movie of this year. No. no. Not even no. no. Well, I was I was gonna say not even close, but it's just a no. It's it's probably not even the most beautifully shot movie of the summer. So, hmm. or, but yeah, this movie is just gonna come and go. People are gonna forget about it next week. We'll get an HBO miniseries in like five years, <laughs> and it'll be okay. It's what it should have been to begin with, but whatever. And that's probably the solution. A lot of a lot of adaptations of a novels. Limited event. Okay, yeah, a limited event. It's kind of the same way that Bill Little Lies is supposed to be a limited event, but somehow came back for a season two. That's a movie. That's a movie that was definitely a miniseries, right. or, or that's, that's a, a that's a book that was definitely like that's not a movie. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So before we get out of here, let's talk top ten. Top ten. Mm-hmm. That's all right. All right. So. Like I said on my last episode, or on the last episode of the show, uh, we will be going over whether or not this movie made the top 10 for the year, and it is fair to say that no, it will not make my top 10. It is uh, pretty far down on the list of the movies that I've watched this year. I am currently at 59 movies this year, in theaters, or movies that have been released this year, and... Yeah, this movie doesn't even scratch the top 10. If you want to check out my entire list, if you look in the show notes of this episode in your podcast app, you will find a link directly to that. Miguel, any chance Mm. that this would be in your top 10 for the year? I highly doubt it. No. There. It will be in my top 20. Top 20. But right now, I don't have that list completely filled out in my head, but it's number 20. Plus, you don't watch as many movies, but... I don't watch as many movies, but I, I know good when I see it. <laughs> and I know it's not the Goldfinch. I say that with a profound sadness. Let me walk you through this. When I heard it was being made into a movie, I was like, this is going to suck. When I saw the trailer, I was like, I'm going to have to eat so much crow. I They're roasting the crow. I'm going to be proven so wrong. It has Nicole Kidman. It's shot by the guy who does Brooklyn. There's no way this can go wrong. Then I saw the Adam, uh, uh, Amazon Studios logo, and I was like, okay, there's plenty of ways this can go wrong. Then I saw the movie, and here we are. Profoundly disappointed. 
It could have been so much more. It is such a good story, and they let us down. What a shame. That stinks. That does. Well, I think that's as great a place to end this, because I don't think I'm going to be able to top that. So, with that said, I want to go ahead and thank Miguel Barrison for coming on today's episode. Yep. Don't forget, if you like this show, if you like this episode, or if you have comments, thoughts, want to just shout us out, tell us we're wrong about the Goldfinch, uh, let us know on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at AlwaysCriticPod. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to check out more episodes. Next week, we will be talking about Ad Astra, the new movie starring Brad Pitt. And with that, that is our show. I am Rico, and this has been the Always the Critic Podcast.